You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to this week's episode of Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Herd is hosted by me, Joe Hakeem, and I'm joined by Nick Britsky of Nick Drinks, Jason Leinert of the Detroit Optimist Society, and Vato of the Hungry Dudes. We are joined each episode by workers, leaders, and analysts of the hospitality industry. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you like or dislike what you hear, write a review. We love hearing from our listeners. You can visit Herd at HerdPodcast.com, follow Herd on Twitter and Instagram at Herd Podcast, and like Herd Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and now here's this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Nick is taking photos. We are joined tonight. You literally ordered me to take a photo of him pouring the wine. I did, because it's nice to get photos of our guests Director, do, doing what they do. you're such a taskmaster. We just want to come here and talk about stuff. We are joined by Advanced Sommelier, owner of Bridge Street Social in DeWitt, Michigan, and the forthcoming bar Matena. Yes, Matena. Exactly. In Lansing, Justin King. How are you doing? Great. Thank, How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks Thank for you. being with us. So what are you pouring, Justin? So this is a Savignier. This is Chateau Soucherie. Uh This is from Loire Valley, 100% Chenin Blanc. One of my favorite Chenin Blanc producers. Uh, Chenin, really cool grape that you see a lot of uh, usage uh, from wineries in the Loire Valley. Pretty exciting stuff overall, usually of the dry variety with maybe some residual sugar. Uh, in Vouvray, you'll see some more accentuated uh, sweetness from from some producers, of course. Uh, but I'm a really big fan of this wine. I think it's, it's incredibly versatile. There's uh, It's a style that may not fit everyone's needs, but uh, for anyone that doesn't like oak in their in their wines, it likes some minerality. Um, they can be kind of funky too sometimes, and I, I find them to be overall pretty pretty cool. So well, thank you, and thank you for making the commute out here hey, too. Cheers. Cheers. So let's start with this an article. Going around the White Claw about, not well. We can start with White Claw. Fine. <laughs> no, we don't this have let, to. Let's this is the White Claw. White Claw. <laughs> <laughs> um, White Claw is now outselling every craft beer yeah, on the planet. I guess <laughs> I haven't seen the math, and the article that I posted was like from like BroBeer.com. So bro I haven't. Bi- bro Bible. Oh, Bro Bible. Bro Bible. So is yeah. that more official than no, Bro Beer? I don't know. It's Bro something. Yeah, I haven't actually dug Do into bros the research. Drink White Claw. I haven't had it, so I can't t- speak towards it. I think I've had it, but okay. it's what? It's vodka, soda water, and flavoring? So it's it's vodka LaCroix. Okay. Is that what it is? I guess. Okay. Uh, are there calories aside from the vodka? Like, is it like well, low it has calorie? Because there's alcohol. Well, well vodka, yeah. yeah, but I mean like lo- is low calorie then? Lower than, Lower. I guess, beer. Okay. Yeah, so it wh- seems like the only calories in that would be from the alcohol. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and then what's the ABV per, is it like a- Five to a, six, I think. Okay. All right. I'm not positive though. I'd have to do more research. So something you could just drink all day long, and yeah, it's fairly inexpensive. I know nothing about it for what it is. I mean, it should be inexpensive. Uh, Does anybody have any stories of people getting wicked hammered on this yet? I mean, because that's part of like the American lexicon of nostalgia <laughs> is is those moments where you have too much of something. So, so normally Jess doesn't talk, but Jess, do you know have any white claw stories? Or have you seen anybody get hammered off of it? No, no. I mean it's five percent. Yeah, you're gonna have to like. 
chug six of them <laughs> to get drunk. And it's carbonated and yeah, yeah. It'd be burpy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, mean, I guess it's no worse than a beer, but right. You would literally have to shotgun five in a row to like really feel anything. You know, I don't even think you could black out that because it's only five percent. So I like how it's safe. <laughs> Justin mentions getting, getting drunk, and Jess jumps to blackout. <laughs> <laughs> There are, by the, yeah, there are two Michigan State alumni, at least in this room. So I know both Nick and I are. So I don't know if anyone else is. But this is pretty natural part for our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Blackout, burn a couch. You know, right. That's what happens. Yeah. And here's the thing. I mean, especially with vodka, for the most part, I'm not drinking vodka because I'm drinking for flavor. Mm-hmm. I'm not using it as a tool to get inebriated. Right. So to drink White Claw really just seems like a tool to get drunk. Yep. So that's why that has never excited me. Yeah. I... I didn't even know it existed until maybe a couple weeks ago. Stop it. I, I didn't. I, Stop it. I knew this hard seltzer thing was happening, but I didn't know White Claw specifically. Wait, what's the White Claw demo? What's the demographic for White Claw? Uh, um, if co- I had to guess, probably 25 to 49, probably skewing female. That makes sense. Fitness, fit, fitness yeah. focused, I would say. It's, Active lifestyle. It's, it's like ke- Come on, use the terms. Active Cardio. lifestyle. Yeah. It's because it's keto friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Paleo, paleo. Uh, I don't know if paleo couldn't caveman have made it. Keto, paleo, Marlon Brando. All those things. Hashtag clean eating. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, all of it. All of it falls in line with that. I guess that's why it's so damn popular. Let's get to a real article. Yeah. So uh, another article. Let's go from cheap booze to massively expensive booze. Um, There is a producer, Lieber Patter. Is that how you say it? I think that's how it is. Okay. Um, Who is a Small producer, right? Yeah. Out of um, France, yeah, Bordeaux. Bordeaux. Um, they are ultra boutique. They're mm. they're bringing in a bottle of wine that is going to cost thirty four thousand dollars a bottle. This isn't that crazy, right? There's there's no reason for that. I, I well, I'll, I'll say this. There, I guess there's a reason and a time and place for everything, but that's that's for collectors who have money to burn and and speculation too because yeah. doesn't Bordeaux heavily speculated well you know i don't really know if this is part of the entrepreneur i'm i'm, I'm very not aware of the history of this particular winery but uh, my understanding is that this wine is made from uh not the typical bordelais grapes of like cab merlot cab franc but some other uh grapes that are sort of in rare use that are approved for the region yeah, uh, they have to do. They have to be a Vend de France. This has to be a Vend de France. It can't be like okay. AOC okay. or AOP Grave or Margot or anything like that. What does that mean? So that's a classification system in France where um, there are certain appellations where they have rules that I think it's the Cahier de Charge um, in France uh, creates. So, say for example, in seven year, uh, the wine that you're drinking, Chateau Soucherie, uh, every seven year has to be 100 percent Chenin Blanc. And uh, in in other regions, there might be a combination of grapes. You know, like in Chateau Neuf de Pop in Rhone, I believe there's 18 grapes that you can use in any combination. And there's some major ones that are more important, like Syrah or Grenache or whatever. So, but the grapes that they're talking about using for this insanely expensive wine are not part of uh, the, the the most of, actually all of the appellations of that level. So, like Margot can have like you know Cabernet, uh, Merlot, Cab Franc, whatever. Um, that's not these grapes are not allowed in Margot, mm-hmm. so they can't. You can't if even if the winery was in Margot, you can't call it Margot mm-hmm. for that reason. So okay, so th- th- this bottle thirty four thousand dollars, right? It's crazy. Aver- on average, their bottles when they when they ex- you know export their wine, they range at forty two hundred, which also seems crazy to me. 
I've never spent that much on a bottle of wine. I don't plan to. Yeah. So who are you said they're going after collectors? Is, is that like restaurants don't carry forty two hundred dollar bottles? Most most don't. But but I mean, are there? Is there a place for that? In Vegas. Yeah. Vegas. Okay. Vegas. Um, or or the sellers of ultra rich collectors looking for something super rare and a good story to tell. You know, I don't know if any of those people live in Michigan. Uh, Dan Gilbert, maybe I don't know. Um, but it doesn't really seem like something that would fit this market that well. But I'm sure there's a place for that. When you say good story to tell, like so, say someone purchased a thirty four thousand bo- thirty four thousand dollar bottle of wine, showing off. But what's the story then? Like, look at my thirty four thousand dollar bottle Kinda. of wine. Like, are you are you even telling the story? Like. It, it, does someone understand that story? You know, if if you're a historian of uh, Bordelais wine, maybe, but you're also going to see the 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 humor of opening a bottle of thirty four thousand dollar wine because the wines that you're into are probably those hidden finds that you spent fifty bucks on or seventy dollars on that was pretty special, but kind of blew away the competition that was three times the price. Or you were lucky enough to hold on to uh, a bottle from from your wedding year, you know, let's say back in '82 or something like that, and it's sh- showing amazing, and it cost you fifteen dollars at the time. Like the the nostalgia and the romanticism doesn't match up. So in my mind, it's really only for the wealthy people that want to show off something. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to be cynical about it. I understand why these things are in play politically, and they might actually help you build relationships with other rich people. I'm I'm not trying to <laughs> hate on that, but that's kind of what it feels like. It sounds it sounds like to me. I, I, one of the other questions I have about this is, you know, the cost of a bottle, so $34,000. And what is the actual cost of production for something like that? And, and like the growth of some special grape, you know, some – Did l- they put l- that much effort into it? Is that kind of what you're asking? Right. So is that is that price set by the maker or is it set by the speculation that's happening when the maker says, oh, I'm making this wine? Have you ever been to the Ann Arbor Art Fair? Yes. So you know that – Generally speaking, paintings will sell better at sixty dollars than at twenty dollars. Oh, well, interesting. People want to people want to buy things that have value attached to it when they're seeking things that have value. So, so twenty dollars disposable, so tw- but sixty isn't correct. Okay, and so in my mind, a super wealthy person looks at something that's thirty four thousand dollars and change, and that might get them in their head to a new level of of wealth and. Uh, artificial gratification that a $2,500 bottle is not going to give them. I went to dinner a couple of years ago with uh, someone from out of town and um, I took them to chartreuse. Okay. Very good. Very good meal. Um, the first thing he said was, I need to see the wine list. And he looked at the wine list and he didn't look at anything but the prices. He's like, oh, here's a $200 bottle. Take that. It was the most expensive bottle on the menu. It's like, well, there's other wines. He's like, no, no, that's fine. That's all I want. Oh, Okay. It was a very odd kind of interaction because, like, don't don't you want to learn about them or yeah, figure I mean, out like what 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 each bottle is, you know, what it is and what what the flavor profiles are, what it would pair well with? No, I just want the two hundred dollar one. It's it, it's it's really bizarre, and it's it's a never ending uh, attempt to conquest the idea of what social psychology means when people look at wine on a wine list or on a retail shelf. You know, your your friend may. You know, six months later, be uh, may have gotten a raise or something like that, and all of a sudden they're like, "Well, let's go to let's go to MGM and find some insanely good first growth Bordeaux and spend six hundred dollars." And because I want to, and uh, you, you know, I don't, I don't fault anyone for not wanting to know the stories behind wine. I, for me, um, what I care about is making sure somebody walks in the door happy. And 
you know, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to look at prices only and go, yeah, I'm buying something expensive. But, you know, that's not my job to, to judge that guy. You know, he, his mind may be so somewhere else so stressful and so concentrated on issues related to family or finances or, um, you know, helping out somebody at work or something that this is just a decision that he needs to spend 30 seconds on and not care about. And I get that. Right, right. So at your place in, in DeWitt, Right. Currently. So DeWitt's a small town. It's very small. There is currently no stoplight. There will be one in about in about a month. It's hanging there. It's getting ready to get back up. But there is there is no stoplight right now. And wow. you built a wine bar with one of the largest glass lists in Michigan. Yeah. We have – we're currently featuring I think 151 wines by the glass. So it's a lot. Um, we – we do it through the use of a Corvin. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it works really well. Um, we do have spoilage just like any other place. You know, there are some bottles that just don't really sell that well. And, uh, the Corvin really helps us, um, expand the lifespan of those bottles, but it's still fallible. You know, what's a Corvin? A Corvin is a system that injects argon through the cork, uh, with this kind of like really thin medical grade needle and, uh, exchanges the wine for argon and the argon being inert, like protects the the wine from getting oxygenated. So um, it is fallible. So you, there are times where we've been able to extend the lifespan of a wine and its quality up to, say, five, six months. But there are times where it fails after three weeks. You just got to do quality checks. And uh, But it, overall, it's been a really great advantage for us to to really tell a lot of stories. You know, wine's a pretty romantic thing overall. And you can you can get people to escape in their brain for a couple of hours if you do the, do it the right way. And it really helps us do that. And I think one of the things why I love that program is – um, yes, there's a lot of costs that come associated with having to do that glass list. But me being such a, a character of wanting to try so many different things, having all that flexibility to be able to try, you know, four things maybe for a meal as opposed to get, committing to a bottle I think is great. Now, and if you're dining alone, that's even better. Now, if you are with a group, it's easier to get a bottle and pass it around and things like that. But then you got to get people to agree. So – why do why don't you see more expanded glass programs like that? Because I feel like it helps people you know, uh, explore more. Well, let me let me turn that around just for a second because uh, I don't I don't get out to uh, Metro Detroit as much as I would like to anymore. Uh, between getting the second restaurant online and having two kids now, it I'd kind be of, shocked if anyone has more than twelve, fifteen. Yeah, by the glass. Yeah, uh, I mean maybe vertical. I mean, yeah, I got top like, what, of my 40 head. Or 50? Yeah. Um but Royce the, doesn't have that many. What about uh private proper doesn't do they? Liz Liz has a pretty I don't think she has so. a pretty good selection. Yeah. I think it's I think it's bigger than than a dozen or 15. I think it's higher. Okay. I think she's but got It's nowhere near the 100. And, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Um using the Corvin does take a lot of effort. It's it's something that you have to train everybody on. You know, so basically almost my entire front of house staff knows how to use a Corvin. They have to be patient. We have to condition the guests to be patient as well. I mean we kind of frame it as though it's a cocktail being made. You know, usually when you're pouring a six-ounce glass of wine, it's going to take 10 seconds, nine seconds. You know, it's nothing, no big deal. But a Corvum, um, even with a speed uh, even with a, a speed needle, like a fast-pour needle, it's still going to take you 35 to 60 seconds depending on what you're pouring. And that can add up if a whole table has four cocktails and three glasses coming from one of those. Now, we have about 15 wines that are part of flights that, that are quick pours. So we don't worry about that. They're the volume ones. It's the other special stuff that that is on Corvin. 
And the way Corvin originally sold and the way people used it in most restaurants is, hey, you can have this really great expensive bottle of wine and not have to pay for the whole thing. You can have a six-ounce glass of Chateau Margaux and not pay for the whole thing. We look at that and we, we do that, but we also will incorporate other kind of oddballs at lower prices that maybe people would, wouldn't take a flyer on a bottle. Like here's a Trechadura from Galicia, Spain. And yeah, we understand that you don't want to spend 37 to $45 a bottle. So we're going to offer it at $11 a glass. And that works out extremely well. The the pitfall of having that many wines though is the massive amount of training that it takes. Yeah. Like getting people to feel straight comfortable talking about these wines. And um, I mean truth be told, I'm really blessed with the amount of really awesome – like salespeople on my staff, they they are very good at talking shop uh, on the floor, and that didn't come easy. Our first three to six months was extremely difficult. We only had probably we had two good people, but they were off doing better things. One of them's at Lake Tahoe, and one of them's uh, helping at a wine program in New York now. So good for them. They're 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 doing awesome stuff. Uh, but we do have a couple of guys who have been with us since day one, and they've learned so much. They're both certified psalms now, and I. I've handed off the program basically to them at this point because it's like I need them to grow. I need them mm-hmm. to spread their wings and I need them to stay hungry. And if I were to be the guy, the wine guy all the time, they would just get bored. Yep. So talk about the vision of Bridge Street before, when you, when you decide to open it because opening in DeWitt seems like a, seems like a stretch to say the least. Yeah. It's, I mean, no, it's a small town that's growing. Uh, there, there's, there's a healthy amount of middle class people there that it's growing in a way that makes sense for, for, uh, putting a wine bar in, it was certainly ahead of the curve for better and for worse. There are pitfalls that come with that, of course, but there's a strength to it because the market was just ready to go for it. There was they were, they were craving independent uh, restaurants, and that's something that absolutely played into it. You know, um, it started with me where I went to um, I went to a friend's wedding in New York about maybe uh, six years ago or so five five six years ago. And I went to a bar called uh, the Ten Bells in near Chinatown uh, in Manhattan, and I just looked around. And I was like, "This this place could not exactly this place, but this place could be in Lansing." And I knew it would take energy to train people and con- sort of conditioning the pricing a little bit, and it has to be lower than New York pricing, obviously. Um, and we still get resistance on ten dollar classes, believe it or not, which is really yeah, it's kind of bonkers to me, but but. I get it. Like if, if, I mean, baby steps, right? Like not everyone is used to wine bars and it's on me to, to convince them to come back and be into it. So I saw you had a pretty strong happy hour. Uh, and do, do you have wine available that's less than $10 at all times? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I you mean, do. we probably, our normal wine list, we probably have about 35 to 40 glasses of wine that are $10 or less. Oh, that's it's, great. it's insane. It's insanely inexpensive compared to the markup of some places in Metro Detroit. Although, uh, looking at some of the wine bars in Metro Detroit, their their, mar- their margins and markups are very similar to mine as well. So, it's, I'm not the only one that's going lower on that. It's but Lansing requires that to make them feel at home. I the last thing I want is to be this over the top, you know, sort of upper crust wine bar that people think of as as a place where you go if you want to look like um, some Lansing elite like. Our place is pretty stripped down overall. The point is to make it stripped down and homey. So that's it's worked out so far. Is there any type of uh, like equation that that restaurants use for markup of wine? Is it, is it like a tried and true? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And this this is a really fascinating concept to me because I you know I, there's been a lot of discussion I think throughout the years, especially now with corkage being allowed in the state of Michigan for for uh, establishments that have. 
uh, that have a license. Well, so corkages. Corkage. So like – so for example, if you want to bring a bottle of wine that you love, it's a special bottle of wine. Uh-huh. And if a place has a license to pour wine, then you can bring it in if they let you and they can charge you whatever amount they want to charge you. So we charge $15, very inexpensive. To, to just open the bottle yep. and pour. Okay. And there are places in the state that are upwards of $50 to $60 on that. So it can get pricey. Um, but Try, trying to dissuade you from doing it at that point? Correct. Okay. And and I get that too because you know a lot of profit can come from mm-hmm. beverages. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a touchy circumstance for people that don't understand how, how margins work with wine. And I can definitely empathize with people who want them to be lower. But I mean here – I'll just – just to be candid. So like let's say – Let's say you buy a bottle like this. I think Chateau Soucherie, I think it's $23 wholesale and the company is Imperial Beverage. So that's $23 wholesale. That's probably going to be on my list probably about $18 a glass. Okay. And then I'll probably do something about $60 a bottle, Uh $18 for a six-ounce pour, $60 for the whole bottle. On the shelf at your average retail establishment, you're probably looking at maybe thirty nine ninety nine, okay, instead of sixty. So I'm charging twenty more dollars, but I'm doing that because I'm supplying a place that actually has a full kitchen. It has thousands and thousands of dollars of glassware. It has people who are trained to serve you correctly, to serve it at the correct temperature, to serve it at the correct time. Utilities, utilities, everything. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that goes into it, and that's that's sort of like. That's that's the age old why are you charging more thing that people some people aren't into and some people understand it and we sort of try to bridge that gap in the middle so we don't we don't we don't go too high on our margins. I think there's a kind of like a tight rope you're walking then because but there's also the this I struggle with this sometimes too because you'll see bottles that like I used to work at Trader Joe's and Trader Joe's you, you can get wine for very inexpensive and I would look at some restaurant lists and say oh that's like. $12 at Trader Joe's, but it's $48 on this list. That's that's not fair. That doesn't seem fair to me, right? Um, but I feel like as you build a wine list, and there, there's some there's some goal of like uh, uncovering new gems for people. Of Is course. That some, and so like when you train your staff with 130 bo- glass, you know, by the by the glass pours, how do you direct them to uncover these gems for people. Well, wine is wine is romantic and going out to eat is romantic. It's often the only spare time that say a, a couple with three kids at home actually has to have a conversation about whatever they want to and they're not going to get interrupted by their kids arguing and having the mom and dad go play good cop bad cop. You know, so we understand that they're trying to get out of their head. So the romanticism is so important that we we really don't want to involve ourselves with carrying wine that's out there uh, extensively in places like Walmart, Meyer. I mean, no offense to anyone that shops there. It's just, I mean, but but that, there's nothing romantic about buying Behringer White Zinfandel on my list, and I'm not. I'm You're not bringing value to it because yeah. it's something they probably can't get. Yeah, and and if it allows my 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 serving staff to tell a really cool story about. Um, you know, the island of Santorini, Greece, or, um, you know, going, going uh, into the mountains in Willamette Valley, Oregon. That's cool. That's, that attaches a memory to the people that are sitting there. And if that meant that they're serving a bottle that cost us $9 and we're charging 31, I mean, that does sound a little bit higher than retail and it is, 
But the point is we're we're providing all of those six to seven steps that allow them to enjoy their life in a different way that they didn't have access to. And there is a lot of responsibility in that. You cannot gouge people for that reason. You have to really be soft on your margins in the long run, in my personal opinion. I don't run a casino. I don't run a hotel. I know there are different reasons why their markups are the way they are. But for, for a small restaurant with only 58 seats, like, you know, we, it's always a long play and we'll always go low, lower on the margins than, than most restaurants where we can. I think, I think if you look at food too, you know, you think of like what a potato costs versus like what once you've processed it and put it on a plate and send it out. I think that if people kind of get wrap their head around that a little bit more, they might be open to kind of that plus up that wine does bring. Cause there is all of that, you know, the storage, the serving, the, Glassware, the cleaning, the the knowledge that I think you have to put into it. There is this really bad habit in the Midwest uh, of people wanting to nickel and dime restaurants, and, and like there's this you know the the thought that you should get dinner and then lunch the next day. Should be able to like take a, home like a leftovers, Mangianos, if you will. Right, <laughs> but but I mean, but so if your portion size isn't huge, you know if. If there's not you know, enough to gorge yourself on, people get upset about that. Well, that's a little and, chicken of an egg too because um, portion sizes were going up because they were trying to put the value and still hit their you know, the margins they needed. So I feel like some of that, you know, people do eat too much when they go out. Yes. And I think you, know, you, you don't have to eat all that and you, know, you can still pay for a good experience without having to you know, explode at the table. Right. And, and there's, there's a balancing act there because I feel like – you guys have a, a pretty extensive food menu. Yeah, it's, really it's, great looking. It's a la carte too. It's I mean, so it doesn't ne- things don't necessarily come with sides with us. That's not really how we roll because of the reasons that you're talking about. And um, the way the market was positioned in in Lansing was like especially in Dewitt was this was a place that had those family restaurants already. So we're like, okay, well, I don't want to compete with them and have to do six dollar plates of pasta and only make. $2 per plate, that's not sustainable. It's, I mean, we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. to open a place. Like, we need to make more than $2 a plate. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that most, like, say, your average burger in Metro costs 15 bucks on a menu, $16 probably. Well, the food cost of that is probably only about 375 to 425 right? But people don't know that necessarily. And that's okay. But there's a lot of work that goes into it like you were talking about earlier. I mean those those cooks have to get trained. The chefs have to get trained. Everyone has to understand what goes into those plates and done at a correct time. They need to know the different burn spots on uh, on the grill to see what the temp- differences in temps and things like that because a lot of people use old rickety equipment that they bought at auction <laughs> instead of new stuff because you have to get the doors open mm-hmm. and not spend all of your money getting all the fancy stuff. So these are all things that come into play. That spoilage. Be- spoilage is huge too yeah. and uh, you, you got to watch those things and – that's also, I mean, going back to the menu thing, that's our menu. We have about, I think, 13 entrees right now and four, 13 or 14 small plates, and we never go higher than that. You know, we don't try and do 100 things because that's, that's freaking stupid. There's, I mean, I, we're, we're not going to be the kind of place that does tacos and pizza and meatloaf and burgers all the same. That, that doesn't make sense for us. So, but to your point, um, we do rotate the menu a lot. We try and bring things in seasonally, and that's sort of where the fun is for, for a small restaurant like us. Did, did the did the food and the wine kind of harmoniously pair together, or is this something? Did you build your wine list first and then find a chef? How did that? 
happen? So my business partner uh, is the exec chef. Okay. Uh, his name is Mike Luther. Chef Mike is um, it's pretty good at coming up with really interesting things that are derived usually from either uh, American comfort foods to an extent, but also Southwest United States, uh, Northern Spain, um, Italy, a little bit of Greek. Uh, but the point is for him, it's like just nobody wants to get bored. That's really it. And if the kitchen's getting bored, then the guests are probably getting bored. Right. So, and we have a lot of regulars now at this point that are really happy of the the rate of rotation. And when he and I met, we have very different ideas about kind of maybe what we thought the market would bear. But when we talked about the idea of what we wanted to do specifically, it all made sense. It all sort of matched up. Um, I used to call on Chef Mike as a as a as a wine rep uh, with Imperial Beverage. And I had been in sales for about 10 odd years overall and I just got to a point where like uh, I'm at my ceiling here. I need to figure out something new and sort of reinvent myself. And so that's where the, the ideas came. After coming back from that trip uh, from New York, talking to my wife, I'm always like, OK, I got to think of something to do. I think Lansing is ready for a wine bar of the kind that I want to create. And talking with Mike maybe six, seven months later – you know, his ideas were like, yeah, I want to do something pretty adventurous here too. So it all kind of came together after that. So you said Lansing, but you're still 20 minutes out of Lansing, right? We're about 10 minutes, um, okay, 10 depending minutes, on okay. how much snow and ice are on the ground in winter. <laughs> so which is, Fair. I think, eight months long now. Okay. <laughs> we do we do get a lot of people from Lansing on the weekends. Yeah. Um, it's usually a lot of DeWitt locals during during the week, of course, which that's pretty normal for any any location. Got it. Yeah. And this has been pretty sustainable so far. It's been very sustainable. Um, we've had – the first year was like really up and down and trying to figure out where the market was and who were the, like the key people that would love what we do. Uh-huh. Um, we, we figured out how to reach people a little bit better. We do a lot um, through social media. We, we have never spent money on traditional ad work. That's, and we just don't have – first of all, we don't have the budget for it. You know, I would say our budget for, for marketing is kind of like probably how much some of these other restaurants spend on snacks. Like it's just we don't really have a lot of money for it. So we had to really pick our battles and, and seek out you know, where to spend money. And we were lucky enough to get some really good press second year in and that just really just kind of catapulted us into a level that we could really sustain and thrive on. And so we're uh, three years in now and um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way things are going. You know, the winter was a little bit tough with the polar vortex and, and the off and on snow and ice. And when, you live in, when you're in a small town, that gets difficult. But, but we, you know, we weathered that storm and – and we've had a pretty successful run so far. That's great. Um, Nick, so you brought a bottle with you mm-hmm. of wine. Yeah. So can we open this? Let's uh, – Yeah. Can we steal your key? Justin. Yes. Yeah. Um, so th- this is uh, Louis Dresner's selection. And Justin, do you know m- much about Louis Dresner? So there's not a lot available from them on a regular basis here in Michigan. But you can purchase a lot through pre-order. The distributor does not stock a whole heck of a lot from them at this moment, but that doesn't mean it's not available. It just takes a little bit of time and energy. So how would you describe Dresner? So I haven't had more than probably a dozen of their wines overall, but I would say we're looking at a lot of small uh, boutique producers from from Europe. And they're usually producers that don't intervene a lot in their – in their production. So this is a natural wine. I don't know that one specifically, but I'm I'm sure it's probably in that camp somewhere, even though that, that phrase is such a goalpost moving phrase, it's hard to really know um, what people mean when they say it. But this is not a this is not a wine that you're gonna see on the shelf at Kroger. Yeah, so l- let's talk about natural wine. The 
not maybe you say it's a moving goalpost. So what does that mean that it's a moving goalpost? It's like I mean, what's a hipster? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know what a hipster is. I mean, yeah. you know, six years ago, a hipster was somebody that listened to Vampire Weekend. I don't know what a hipster is now. I mean, things are constantly adjusting depending on who you talk to. I would say most people under under the camp of non-interventional winemaking, would, that's where natural wine is, you know, um, native yeasts as opposed to inoculating with your own yeast. Those, those sorts of elements I think are pretty relevant in that conversation. And the good thing I guess for, for those producers is it at least gets – allows them to get branding out a little bit of introducing an easy idea. Now, some of the, the quote-unquote natural wines that I've had are just terrible, but some of them are really good, and I and I pour I pour some good ones. So, do you have you have it in your list at? The yeah, restaurant? I mean, so a, a real classic producer that is very non-interventional would be like Ar Lopez de Heredia, okay, uh, in in Rioja, Spain. They've got some really wonderful uh, Tempranillo Graciano blends. Their Rosé's killer. Um, not an enormous amount of it out um, out there on wine lists here in Michigan, but they're. I would say Metro Detroit definitely has the, the, the biggest cluster of places you can find uh, wines from them. We care, we've carried them through the last few years. We're going to be doing a lot with them at, at our new spot in Lansing because so, that's going to be a Spanish, uh, Spanish restaurant and wine bar. Uh-huh. So that, that's a producer that I look at as, as a really wonderful uh, entry point into what that sort of means for somebody that doesn't really know. Do, does the average consumer care about natural wine? No, but they, they like drinking – and if you can find something that makes sense for them, you don't necessarily even have to have that conversation. They can be just something like, oh, here's a cool wine and it might be really cool. And, I mean you might have – you might have Osobuco in front of them for this big hearty dinner you know, for Christmas or something like that and then you throw this rustic, you know, West Coast, full-bodied natty wine out there and not even talk about it. Maybe it's just a favorite of yours and that, that's an entry point, you know. And that's and that's the other thing. As anybody who serves wine, sommelier should know is like don't go down a path that people don't need to know about if they're not asking for it. Like talk at the language that they care about, and that even extends to your relatives and family. You know, there's no reason for somebody to go on this 90 second rant about why natural wines are superior if no one's engaged in that conversation. That just there's a, there's a no point to it. So then, what about sommeliers that build wine lists specifically to? educate people on natural wine. I mean, there are wine lists out there that are focused on that. That's a philosophical uh, decision that they can make. And, you know, any anybody that wants to make that decision is well within play of, of creating a wine list that has superior quality or inferior quality. It's really up to them to, to seek out those gems. There are gems out there. And if they want to market themselves as a, a natural wine bar and Pour really good wines, then they're they're doing it. They're they're doing what they're supposed to do, and that's awesome. Um, throwing, I mean, I, the flip side of that is to see "quote unquote" natural wines on a list that are really flawed. That you're just like, oh, <laughs> like I I really hope I really hope the average like Mayomi drinkers not getting suggested that wine right now because they're gonna hate it. So, I think that's an interesting topic because I, I wouldn't know necessarily what a flawed wine is. What does that mean to you? There's there's all sorts of flaws. That, that Do you know what a flawed beer is? Not, not by taste. Okay. I, I know what I like and don't like, but I wouldn't be able to say like um, there was a discussion about was it Bourbon County a couple years ago was mm-hmm. infected. Mm-hmm. I would not know an infected beer if you handed it to me. I have a whole case. So you can try some. Oh, great. <laughs> Do you, have you ever had Orval? 
Yes. Okay. So that's a really good exercise in Britannomyces. Okay. So Orval trap spear in the, on the uh, Belgian-French border. Uh, awesome. I uh, had female brewer, by the way. But that's an exercise in maximizing the use of Britannomyces without overloading the palate. It's not a beer that you're going to session out. You're not going to have five Orval unless you're a total fucking moron. <laughs> so like that's just stupid. Yeah. But, but, it's, but it's great with steak, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. So, but that's the thing, right? So, Britannomyces is one of those things that you, you get Breton beer, you get Breton wine, and too much can be intense. Uh, a common a common flaw has to do with corkage, you know, cor- a wine that's corked, trichloroanisole, um, getting through the cork, and you know, essentially making the wine taste like cardboard. Like that's that's a really easy thing to to get used to once you've had a lot of wines that really pops out, like whether the fruit's really muted, and all of a sudden these really weird sort of cardboard notes come out, like musty horsey kind of stuff. Um, but there's there's a lot of natural wines that have those flaws. There's a lot of wines that, that are manipulated that still have flaws. And it's sort of – it's always a learning experience. I mean just be, you know, just take for example uh, harvesting, right? Every year is you're, – you're creating produce and you are subject to the whim of, of mother nature. What's going to happen? What's the weather going to be like? Is there going to be hail? Is there going to be wind? Is there going to be uh, too much rain near harvest? You know, and these sorts of things do affect the wines. There's, there, I mean, we we don't want to talk about. Some people don't want to talk about the preciousness of vintage to vintage. They think it's, you know, jerking off a bit or something. But but there's there is a real story behind that. And natural wines are very subject to those those weather patterns and climates as well. So I want to go back to this thirty four thousand dollar bottle of wine because you're talking about vintages, right? Like how do you, how do you know that that wine is going to be that valuable before it even like. It's, it hasn't been bottled yet, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a magical number that someone's going to create, in, in my opinion. Like, okay, th- this is just one of those things that they get to set the market, and if somebody wants to buy it, they can buy it. And I don't know the history and the economics of what it's like to be that winery. I don't know if it's if it's somebody's pet project, to be honest with you, or if it's something that's been created by farmers. It doesn't really sound like a farming story to me, right? It sounds like something an that's, excess, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. So if that's the, what they want to create, I mean, they do set the market. It could have, I mean, thirty four thousand makes for a really great story, and they got a lot of free press from that, didn't they? Yeah, that's true, Joe. But but, but right, I know. <laughs> but so let, let's take it to the other side. So you bring back Trader Joe's here, and you can go in Trader Joe's get a bottle of wine for four dollars. They're making a profit on that. Like when that wine is produced, is that produced with the intention of? Making a four dollar bottle of wine, and what does that mean? Well, I you know I I don't know the full business model of Trader Joe's, but those are the there is oceans of juice sitting out there, uh-huh. oceans. You know, so Australia uh, had a glut of that you know a while ago, and they've never really recovered. The market for Australia has never really recovered for wine, and they're finally making a resurgence with the cool climate in Australia and some natural wine producers as well. But regarding the four dollar bottles from Trader Joe's, I mean, a lot of times as you're just trying to get people in the door with some basics. That's really all it is. It's like for me, it's hard to overthink really what that's supposed to mean other than they need something basic and dependable and simple. Keep it simple, stupid to get people to say, oh, Trader Joe does this really well for cheap. And when you're buying $4 bottles of wine, you're not looking to change the world and, and tell crazy stories about this, this trip, to, trip to Loire Valley. That's not what that's about. It's just grabbing something simple for your spaghetti at home. Right. That's kind of the, the vodka of the wine world, if you will. Because you're really not thinking about it. You're not sitting there and analyzing the nuances of it. And that's the bulk of purchasing for wine. I mean, most yeah. most wine that is bought is consumed that night. So, so let's shift gears, talk about Bar Matena. 
Okay, so that that's your new project. Yes, and that is um, that Spanish is Lansing. wine is amazing. Spanish I'm just wine. Throw that out there. Um, that's in Lansing proper. Yeah, that's going to be on Lansing's east side. Uh, we are we are slated to open. We originally wanted April, but there's been some extensive delays. At this point, we're probably looking at mid September. It is July right now. And it's July right now. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm just in case if someone's listening to this in like 2020, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, fool us once, right? So it's like, I mean, nothing ever gets done on time. Was Bridge Street on time? No, we we're about five months late. Which so is about on, right. Which is on time. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. on time. Okay. F- five months late according to you guys or according to who? Like, according to our best case scenario. Okay. All right. we're, we're not, it's not like we're disappointed that we didn't get open in April. We're just, that's, that's the goal. I mean, you want to be making money. You, you want to be, be making money. money. <laughs> you know, we're we're paying two sets of bills with yeah. one open restaurant. You know, right. you do the math. Right. And how dependent are you going to be upon college life? Because the university does kind of slow down over the summer. The the issues with college don't I don't think are going to affect us that much okay. because maybe parents th- visiting on weekends or there there might be a little bit of that, especially related to um, athletics. Where where this place is is um, it's a forty seat restaurant on Michigan Avenue, which is sort of like the main thoroughfare for downtown traffic going from Lansing to East Lansing. There's a lot of build out happening on East Michigan as well, so it's kind of in the middle of like the the the, the new resurgent section of town. And a small place like this with forty seats, we don't really foresee any college type issues. Uh, the kind of people that are going to come to a place like this, we think, are going to be young professionals between the ages of, say, 28 and 50. That's that's the demo for us and that makes sense for us. I mean I don't really – when I was 21, I did drink a little bit of wine, I guess. I mean I worked in a wine store. Um, but I was still drinking $7 bottles, $8 bottles. I was just learning and I didn't have a whole lot of money. you know. So that's that doesn't really seem like where we're at. We're not going to be Dublin Square for – all those MSU alum out there that understand that reference. Um, that's not really what Rick's would be, be another one. So so uh, this place is really – we're trying to do the best we can with creating really fun, adventurous um, cocktails and a really cool wine list. Probably going to go somewhere around 400 bottles deep on the wine list and probably do about 45 to 50 wines by the glass. Do some really fun sherry pours. Do some things with Amaro's. Amari, I should say. Um, and – Kind of just get experimental and, and change things up as much as we can. It's a small spot, so we want to. We just want to stay stay vibrant. I mean, that sounds amazing. Because if you think of the, I'm not aware of a big big cocktail program in Lan, in Lansing. I mean, maybe Red Red Haven Red Table Red Red. Ha- oh, so yeah, and, and they're East Lansing. So the the to me, and I'm I you know I'll probably forget somebody that's really awesome, and I'm sorry about this. Uh, the, American Fifth is kind of doing some cocktails, but he's a distillery. Yeah. So you guys, it's not that you're spoiled. It's that you have developed a, a community much better and that has a lot to do with the USBG. Yeah. Right. So same with Grand Rapids to an extent too. Right. Yep. We, me and about three other people have tried to recruit for USBG Lansing and I'm a member. I'm not really involved right now. I don't have a whole lot of time, but the goal is to get USBG Lansing up and running within the next 18 months if right. we can do it. But, that's the bartender's guild if people don't know that. Yeah. Right. And uh, that's a really great place to network and meet people and, and foster competition and mm-hmm. get, get ideas and get inspired. Uh, Lansing has a couple of places like that. You know, uh, Obviously, Liz did a really good job at Red Haven when she was there. Yep. Um, Red Haven's a good spot for that. The Soup Spin's a good spot. American Fifth. You know, Zuby's is a good spot. We've been getting oh, yeah. some really good press from cocktails in the last year, which is awesome. I'm so, super thankful. 
we really – our goal and it's nothing personal. I think any any restaurateur would say want to say stuff like this and, and do it. But we, our goal is definitely to be the, the place to drink in Lansing mm-hmm. for Bar Montana. That's just the number one goal. And it's on us to execute that and uh, we'll, we'll try and set that high standard for ourselves. And I think that what, almost getting that anchor helps because you know if you think of like, – like myself, if I'm going to a new city, I'm going to hunt out who's that anchor and then from there kind of spread out. Yeah. So and I think it, it is tough for when, when I go to Lansing to try to find that anchor. And I go to Red Haven occasionally. It's all right. Um, and yeah, I like what American Fifth, what they're doing. But yeah, I feel, I feel like it's tough. So having that spot I think would be big. Well, listen, um, you know this better than most people. Uh, the talent goes to bigger markets. Sure. So, oh, totally. So Lansing gets sucked out a little bit from Detroit. Detroit gets sucked out a little bit to New York and Chicago. And that's just the nature of it. And I don't fault anyone who wants to – who's making $38,000 as a bartender in Lansing. I want them to make 50000 in, in mm-hmm. Detroit and I want them to go make 75000 in New York City if that's what they want to do. Well, I also think that as everyone's tastes evolved and people get more – I mean now craft cocktails are everywhere. People are more open to uh, a lot of these flavors. Maybe now you'll have um, access to the college market because at least you'll get them for a couple of years. And maybe they will stick around because they're kind of stuck there. And and the key is to do it. And we've talked a little bit about this. Um, my my bartender, my, my former bar man, manager at Bridge Street, is coming over to run the bar at Bar Matena. Super knowledgeable dude. Um, he, the goal is to build a cocktail program and a wine program that is aspirational without having the aspirational mm-hmm. price tag. You know, we want to we want to tell crazy awesome stories for eight dollars a glass. We want to have really amazing house made cocktails for seven. Yeah, we know how that crazy that can sound for bigger markets like seven dollar cocktails. That's not normal anymore. But if you're competing with like a Crunchies or something like that, that's the reason, yeah. right? What's so, Crunchies? Like a beer and potato chip kind of place, hamburger place. They yeah. have a really good draft beer selection. Yeah, okay, they do. they're known for the burgers and um, really messy karaoke on the weekends. <laughs> I mean, they are right <laughs> on Grand karaoke. River. I mean, so they are right in the heart of campus. By the way, okay. I really, I'm gonna, I just I'm gonna ask a favor for either of you. The next time you go to a karaoke bar, I don't know how often that is. <laughs> please videotape yourself uh, singing um, "Goodbye Horses." From Jay Lazarus, I, th- I believe her name is Q Lazarus. Okay. Do, you, do you know that song? No. Goodbye no. Horses. That's the song that's playing in The Silence of the Lambs with Buffalo Bill. Oh, when he says, I'm think, I think I'm pretty. That uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah YouTube, YouTube that song, Goodbye Horses. You'll know, you'll know as soon as that beat pops in. Like, oh, it's a great, it's a great like 1.30 a.m. karaoke song. I normally sing the tequila song. Just that one word, tequila. <laughs> he was, there, did you see the guy that was on? I did. Um, yeah. Yeah. America's Got Talent. Oh yeah, I saw that video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so forgive my lack of. Not, I didn't go away to college. I went to Wayne State. So um, this opportunity for to attract maybe a twenty-one-year-old college kid with a seven-dollar cocktail is that likely or no? It's not that likely, but I don't want to shut that conversation down. Okay. I mean, I think it's gotten better. When I went to college, that was not a thing. Well, that that was even an option, was it? There was a shark bowl where you shared it with three other people. Was that seven dollars? <laughs> it wasn't much. <laughs> Realistically, we'll get we'll, we'll get grad students more than anybody. Twenty yeah. twenty four year old grad students, you know. And then you have international too, of course. So, Are you gonna have yeah. a shark bowl at Barbara? <laughs> no, no. But, but we're, we're gonna do we're gonna do quemadas, um, which that? is like a clay pot where you light the I believe it's a rujo that you put in it, um, and you like light it on fire. That sounds great. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah. That's, that sounds very exciting. You do not drink it while it's on fire. No. So it's just less like, exciting. You don't drink fire. Don't drink fire. <laughs> no. 
But if you think of like Amari's and Sherry's, a, a lot of those aren't overly pricey either. So you could get decent glass pours, especially if you're doing smaller glass pours of those. Sherry's an interesting ex- uh, experiment too because – and not to um, not to slander my city, but but Sherry – the, the concept of drinking Sherry in Lansing is a couple years behind the concept of drinking Sherry in, in Detroit. Uh, is it still, a concept? I mean I don't know. Like listen. I want it to be one and I don't think it is. There's still a couple places I know in like um, – who was standby? Were they? I think they're doing something with yeah, Sherry. Yeah, doing a little bit. But like, um, even like the tapas places, it's still not a thing. Okay, so maybe you're feeling the same. The I same want thing it to be a thing, are. but I think I'm in a bubble. Well, yeah, we still we still look at it as like the cream sherry that that grandma no, had. No, no. But no. And there's so much more to it, and yeah. we're gonna take on that fight as much as we can. And the good the good news is we we'll, we will sell some sherry. I just don't know how much. You know, that's okay. Yep. I, I'm not. I'm not out there trying to force people to drink what we think they should drink. And I think, like even like Peterborough, they tried and it, it didn't happen. Yeah. And I don't think there's many sherry's on Peterborough's menu anymore. Same with sake too. And my understanding is that that sh- sherry bars in the major markets like New York aren't the same anymore. That they're kind of decreasing mm-hmm. in yep presence. Now, what I think are coming up though are rum focused bars, are agave focused bars because we're we basically have a, a rum bar now in Metro Detroit or in Detroit. We have uh, Lost, River. Lost River. Yep. Um, we have uh, Toma hey, that's about to open. Or for, pay, and Peso. And Peso. Yep. yep. So maybe that's where it's going. I mean, I'd love for there to be a sherry bar. I just don't know if there's the demand yet. There, there's already gin bars in Chicago and New York, I believe, that are yeah. mostly gin focused. Yep. I think. Yeah. I'm mezcal. fairly certain there's there's the mezcalerias in Chicago and New York. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you um, have to do stuff like that because there's, I mean, bourbon's a whole debacle. How do you, how do you, Brand yourself in such a wild, wildly varying marketplace of what's available from week to week, you know. And hunting those bottles can be a pain. I think gin is fascinating. Um, I think I think there is uh, I think there's a lot of interest in it, and we're going to play a lot with uh, doing some gin and tonics based on the, the Spanish theme. Gin, gin and tonic is a really prevalent thing up in like Barcelona, so huh? we'll have a lot of fun with that. The big, the Spanish style. Yep, exactly. The the thing I struggle with gin though is. Every time I do a video on YouTube about gin, we get people like, I don't like gin. And really? there's – yeah, there's there's just this connotation I think that gin has. So – and maybe that's just they've always tried London Dries. Maybe they could expand their palate a little bit. Um, but I do love the concept of that Spanish gin and tonic because I feel like that does mellow it out because I feel like you have more mixer in there. So That's why we did um, – a while back, we did something called Jennifer Wars where we had yeah. three different restaurants in, in Lansing do um, three Jennifer cocktails. And we wanted to expand the idea of what, what that kind of category really is and that allowed us to have those conversations and really open up people beyond Tanqueray. That's kind of a fun thing. Yeah, um, Nothing against Tanqueray uh, and all you Tanqueray lovers out there who are listening. But you know, the, the part of this that I think is a really hard thing for anyone that has a lot of money invested in a restaurant is how deep off a cliff do you want to go and can you retain the talent that's married to the concept for as long as you mm-hmm. need for them to tell those stories. And I mean bartending and serving is sort of a transient culture sometimes and you don't want to lose talent and then you have to have – I mean it's such a delicate balance to build a positive and, and healthy work culture and that plays into it as well. All right. So what is the barrier to bring in like a Jennifer into your restaurant? So if you – obviously you have the upfront cost of buying that bottle. But then to put it on the menu, what – what, what what do you think about when you put on like a more obscure spirit on a menu? Something else that's safe. Okay. I mean – To mix with it? Something else that's just totally uh, very common and obvious. Okay. I, for us, it's always baby steps. We're not going to put Elisa or Nova Salas on their 
with Batavia Iraq in the same drink. That's just stupid. Like we need we need to pick our spots and make people feel comfortable. Yeah. Explain what both of those things are. So like Elisa Nofasalis Capaletti is like it's a pretty bitter Amari. Okay. And I don't know how to describe Batavia Iraq, but it's like a so good. It's like funky rum. Yeah. Light, lightly funky yeah. rum. Th- that's um it, it's that uh House Alpens? Uh, it's Anis, right? Iraq? No. No, no, no. no. Uh, um, different, different. Two this R's. This is, yeah, A-R-R-A-C-K. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, it's much more of a, it's a cane rummy right, type right, right, thing. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. All right. I literally had Capilili today before I came over. No kidding. Yeah, that's funny. So, okay, so this feeds into a larger question because I'll look at a menu, right, and, and I'm probably not the regular demographic, but I'll look at a menu and I'll say, oh, I don't know what that is. That's what I want. That's the same thing I know. <laughs> Well, you're seeking data points to catalog in your brain because you're always trying to discover. Yes. Then that's that's what that's what gets you off on that. There's a lot of people in our marketplace where them seeking is like, oh, a Pinot Grigio from a region I don't know. And that's as far as you can go. Okay. Because they have so many more things to seek than us maybe. So, yeah. so we've already expanded our beverage palette so much. Maybe they haven't. Well, so it's, maybe, like, yeah. it's like asking Annie Clark from St. Vincent to talk about guitars versus a 14-year-old mm-hmm. who has never had a guitar before. Everything's like, new to them. It's, yeah. yeah. I mean th- there's, there's only so far you can take somebody that their brain can, can make sense of and, and make peace with and enjoy. You know, When I got a guitar when I was 14, I'm like, oh, this is cool. It was an acoustic guitar and like I didn't know how to do anything with it for like six months. But you know, 10 odd years later, learning a lot more about guitars is the same thing with, with anything that you study aggressively. So, And maybe because Joe and I eat out more or like go to look at some of those things. You talked about like someone who uh, is a, uh, a parent that hasn't gone out very often. Maybe they want something more comfortable than something strange. That's 100%. And how do you gauge that? Like, how do you train that? As sub- like, because I imagine with 130 odd pores by the you know glass pores there, there's this got to be a desire to sell something that someone's excited about right and that can bury you pretty quickly yeah yeah there's so many wines yep and, there, and there's a lot to get excited about right so how do you gauge how do you teach gauging your clientele i with with any guest that comes in first of all the regulars everyone should know what they drink or what they're interested in or how they make selections as a consumer, as you a should consumer. know that. Okay. Should, yeah. If you if you can't guide a guest in that direction, like then serving is going to be difficult for you. And I look at that sort of scenario for for any circumstance of selling. Like listen to what they're saying, and if they're not saying anything, that pretty much tells you what you need to know. They're not going to be like really active in discovering stuff. Like if they're not saying anything, they're going to be looking at Chardonnay and Pinot Grigio, Mal- Malbec, Cab, Merlot. That, so that is a great tip. So so let's say someone listening out there is thinking about almost like building up their like almost like their wine business card. Like what what would you want to hear from someone that about that? So like how can you how can you set up that that little data? I'm so, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Uh, can you can you rephrase again? I'm, I'm trying sorry. to think so like so when you go to talk to a sommelier and if you're trying to tell them what you like it, as a customer. As a customer. Uh-huh. Like oh, what what's an exercise? I always, I always have trouble with this when I get my hair cut. I'm like, I don't know. I don't even look at my hair. My wife that's my wife's problem. Sure. <laughs> I know I get it. I don't know. <laughs> you know. so if I don't drink wine then uh, or or I do, but I don't think about it. I would I would probably tell them, you know, I like dry wines that are full body. I like dry wines that are a little bit lighter. I like white wines with a little bit of sweetness, with a little bit of fruit, whatever. And anybody that's worth their salt as a server, not even just a sommelier, but as a server, should have that's enough info. A couple of yeah. wines in their back pocket that they can talk about. And we do train. We let them taste all the time, 
all the time. We are totally cool with that because that's mm-hmm. the only way to learn properly. Yeah. So I have a retort to that because I, I will go into a, a store and say I like – What kind of store? Uh, like, like a, a wine shop, okay. right? right. A, or a place with a decent wine selection with yep. someone who's working the wine section as someone – that that should know about it, right? And, and so I'll say I like Louis Dresner wines, and they'll say, "Oh, I have something for you. It's on the end cap here." And, and I'll know in my head, bullshit. No Louis Dresner wine, nothing like a Louis Dresner wine is going to be on your end cap because your end cap's made to sell, right? So wh- where where does that disconnect happen? Where someone's working us all of a sudden like owning a section or working a section, and it's like I'm just going to push in whatever the hell direction I think they should go in. This is what is so challenging because there's so many different wines and so hard to learn and take this huge matrix of data that is sort of like bonkers bizarre to the average person and condense it to a 10-second retort. Like how do you <laughs> how do you do that? And because of the classist sort of connotations that wine has, if you get that wrong, then all of a sudden you are putting that person in a position of where they start thinking to themselves, A – Am I stupid? Do I not get this? Or B, are you an elitist jerk who tried to sell me some funky ass, you know, wine that that I don't like and I told you I don't like? Like those conversations happen all the time behind the scenes and so rarely do come people come back and like review restaurants or retail shops in this way like oh this person didn't help me this way x y and z. Like most of the time, you don't get comments back on positives or negatives related to that specific type of question. So it's really hard. You have to stay in your shoes and be super humble and always err on the side, in my opinion, of being safe. What is your response to people that don't like a pour of wine in the restaurant? Take it away. 100%. I mean, anyone who argues is an idiot. It's never worth it. Keep your lights on. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what I tell my staff. I'll never yell at them. If they if they have to discount a uh, uh, a burger that was mid- wrong tempt. Um, if the wine isn't good, like I'm literally never going to yell at my staff about that. Well, and that's a great argument because I feel like having someone fight over a burger temp is like something you would never do as a server. But the wine, I feel like, is a little struggle. And you're you're saying same thing. I'm well. I'm also saying that I've seen that argument actually happen at restaurants on both sides. Then you're cheap, and it's, then you don't want to be there. Yeah, it ruins yeah. every emotional, yeah. romantic mood that you have. Maybe you want to flirt with your husband, have a glass of wine or have a good beer and remember what it was like to go out to dinner three times a week instead of once a month. (laughs) And that conversation is an exercise in disconnect that any brain that understands themselves so well gets really frustrated when a server just comes and fucks it up. I also think on the other hand, a lot of kind of the Midwest vibe is just like drink it and hate it. Well, because I, I feel like I've sometimes done that. It's just, just like, oh, just don't. You don't want to bother them. They're having. A, you can see they're busy. Don't, don't. Oh, them. oh, don't say anything. Yeah, yeah leave oh, them alone. yeah. That, that's that's Midwest politeness mm-hmm. at its worst. I think because you have to let someone know if you didn't like something. Because then, then you have this. The worst part of that is the back of your mind saying, "Well, man, they did. They didn't like read my mind. So now I need right? to write right. a right. negative right. review." Well, no, I'm not saying well, that. Well, at you're all. not yeah. saying that at all, yeah. but there there are people out there yeah. that are like, you know, well, now I'm going to now I'm going to give them a one-star Google review. Yeah, but this is where server review. training comes in though. The, every server should be trained well enough to understand nonverbal cues. Mm. Is that glass has that glass been is that glass 3 quarters full even though it's been there for 20 minutes? Ah, like, I mean, these are these are basic yeah. things like you don't want to interrupt people, so don't come in there and be like, 
you know, um, and I'll, by the way, I have two rules which I think are kind of fun. Number one, uh, the, the number one rule at Bridgetree is always check ID, of course. But the number two rule, <laughs> <laughs> the number two rule is never say, "Are you still working on that?" That oh, is my literally. That's the worst phrase. Like, dude, I'm. Do I look like I'm working right now? <laughs> What, what, what are you talking about? I'm, it's like date night. Like I'm, or I'm having having a beer with my friends. I'm not like so. But anyway, like the yeah, nonverbal cues matter, and it's just like burger thing. Like that's judging a wrong temp. Okay, that burger's been sitting there for ten minutes. There's two bites. This is a problem, and a lot of people are super gun shy because they don't want to like upset their wife who maybe um, caused a scene. Yeah, yeah, or vice versa. Yep. Maybe the you know, and that's totally normal. And that's the other thing that I sort of tell a lot of my staff is like, hey, listen. Uh, you do want to have these conversations quickly and get drinks quickly to the table because a lot of times these people have had a shit day at work. They've been working for 10 hours, 11 hours, and they don't want to think about anything. And if you fuck that up and you make more more you know, uh, bad mm-hmm, voodoo mm-hmm. Um, in their lives, like that's – you're making this really terrible. They're, yep. they're not going to want to come back. That's good advice. Yeah. OK. So where can people find out more about your restaurants? So Bridge Street Social, BridgeStreetSocial.com. Uh, it's a website on the interwebs and it's um, – we're on Facebook too and Instagram. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty excited for the new spot, Bar Matena. There's not a lot of information on there yet but we will do – maybe making some more announcements for the full menu uh, as, we, um, as we move forward. We're doing a really fun sneak preview. I think we're close to sold out on this dinner on the 18th. That's going to be at Red Cedar Quill in Williamston. Just a five-course um, kind of preview of what's coming from the kitchen at Barbantana and we're pairing with short spears. So that will be pretty fun. And after that, stay tuned. We have some other ideas down, down the road, but we just want to make sure that we, uh, we do this second one right. Also, I would like you open by September 19th because I will be up there for the 150th anniversary of the marching band. Really? <laughs> yes. What did you play in the marching band? Cymbals and baritone. That's a good combination. It's a weird combination. But yes, I will be up there and I will expect an opening. I hope so. (laughs) Justin, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. This is great. Until next time, dine well, friends.